Hi, everyone, and welcome to Human Centered. I'm Nick Brunker, a group director of experience strategy at VML YNR, and your host for the show. Thanks for giving us a listen. Eight and a half billion searches are processed by Google every day. That's equivalent to 99,000 searches every single second. The goal for Google over the years has been to shorten the path for searchers to get what they need. Why? Quicker answers, more relevant content, more users, which allows Google then to sell more ads, drive revenue. For marketing and CX pros, the name of the game has been to optimize their websites with the right keywords so they'd show up near the top of those search rankings because as we all know, less than one half of 1% of people ever reach the second page of search results. But as AI, specifically large language models, continue to evolve rapidly and become more democratized, the game is changing. So how do we as pros keep pace? Our guest today is going to help us answer that and more. I am so excited and thankful to have with us today Chief Discoverability Officer for VML YNR and a good friend, Heather Fiziak. Heather, thanks for being with us. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Nick. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for taking the time out of what is, I'm sure, a very busy schedule to, to speak mm-hmm. with us. Before we dive in, uh, tell us a bit more about your role and your history at VML YNR. Sure. I've been at VML YNR uh, for the last decade or so. I started in 2014, uh, originally working exclusively in search engine optimization, but things have evolved and changed over the years, a lot like what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so now um, I am leading a department that includes the organic search, paid search, and performance content teams. And we're a proud part of our connections department, bringing all sorts of great ideas to life um, online where people search. And you've seen a lot of change over the years as we look through <laughs> the way that this this evolution of not only search engine optimization, but as Web 3.0 becomes in, how behaviors are changing. like. You've seen the progression from where we were to where we are. I know Google has considered itself an AI company for a long time, at least like thinking back Mm -hmm. to, I think, 2015, 2016, when Mm -hmm. um, their CEO was talking about this. Uh, Why don't we talk a little bit about how we got here? And and now when we think about AI and we move to that later in in the podcast, Uh, How did we get here? Demystify some things for us. Yeah, well, when I got started in search, well, I remember when I first was using search and it was, you know, in the early 2000s in school working in journalism, right? And, And it was just this really great resource to gather a bunch of stuff all in one place with one query. And I was like, wow, this is so powerful. But it was so remedial at that time. And then I started working in search in 2008. And a lot of the development was around... Um, how those search results were curated, like how the search engines went out on the web, crawled through all of the information in the websites that were available, and made the decision to show searchers the top 10 most relevant links to what they search for, right? And and it's not entirely foreign to what we know of as, as search today. However, it's just gotten progressively more robust. The search results are not just 10 blue links, they're images, videos, shopping results, local results, and all of the these multimedia um, assets. And it's not just on desktops, it's on mobile devices, wearable devices, mm-hmm. um, in-home assistant devices. Um, so we're consuming and searching for information in tons of different places. So I would say like the last 10 years of of my work in search has been focused on um, the changing decision-making algorithms that search engines use to rank content. That That's what the last 10, 15, even 20 years of, of our search work has been like. 
Nowadays, I think it is much more about the ability to process these more complex and compound things that people are asking of search. Mm -hmm. People are more sophisticated users of search. They have higher expectations of search. And and they have seen like AI and large language models are now democratizing um, access to this much greater power of search and it's making it simpler and easier and more accessible for people. So it's just getting really wild out there for the ways and places people are finding information. When you think to when voice search started to become a thing and, you know, Alexa Mm. just burst onto the scene, you know, Siri, uh, I think it was a fast follower. If it was around the same time, the way it was being used to search for stuff versus help do a task. Mm -hmm. What we Mm -hmm. saw is the, the changing of behaviors and Obviously, at the time, not everybody had an Alexa or a Google or anything like that sitting around their house. And so even just the way mm-hmm. you functionally interacted with it as a regular, you know, non-professional, so to speak, somebody who's not in the space, your your behaviors are always predicated on how, and I think we're, we're in the same boat here, how we used to all search for stuff. Even I think back to the old days, mm-hmm. as we think back to the early days of the internet, early days of search, you would put a keyword plus another keyword. And, mm-hmm. and it was a very you know archaic as we think about it now, but also very logical, um, almost arithmetic sort of way of going about it. Whereas we, what you were saying now, it's so much more complex. It's so much more just robust. And I think what's really interesting is, as I sit here as a CX pro thinking about it and you know, engaging with you and, and your team is that it's, it is really a time about the changing technology and the democratization of technology, but also tapping into the changing of how humans behave, how people are searching for stuff is changing. Yes. Talk about how that democratization has impacted how you guys look at the behavior that, that humans are taking when they're in the search space. Yeah. I mean, gosh. You nailed it, right? That this is really a fundamental change in how we think and how we use search. It, it's a paradigm shift, but it's happening kind of, or it has been happening, I should say, incrementally over time. And now there's been this big burst of, uh, again, the democratization of large language model technologies. And so it's going to be a much more seismic shift than we've seen. So yeah, let's go back to those days where brands would advertise search for shoes on AOL, right? And it was the one simple keyword. And because that's all there was on the internet at the time. And then um, as people start creating a ton of content on the web, more complicated search engines like Ask Jeeves or Dogpile or later Google now we're talking. start to come onto the market, right? And we start to have slightly higher expectations, but we're also like, wow, this is more powerful than we realized. We can search for all sorts of stuff to find things on the web. And then comes the era of Google, really, where we learn that we can refine queries to get better and better. We may start with shoes, but then we realize we need tennis shoes, but women's tennis shoes, size eight and a half, and we refine until we find what we want. Hmm. Then comes voice search and we're like, oh my gosh, I can just say things out loud. So we see how people search from just like chunky keywords and incomplete sentences into these long, fully formed sentences with who, what, why, when, where, how, is, and does. And suddenly questions Mm -hmm. become important. And now I think we're entering this era of these really complex, 
conversational queries. And the expectation that they're going to have is that search engines are going to parse through this and they're going to understand these very nuanced mm -hmm. and ambiguous and multi-step requests. People used to have to do one search, consume the information, refine and do another search, consume the information. The expectation is now that I can just ask all my dang questions mm -hmm. and the search engine or the LLM is going to interpret all of that and give me an answer as nuanced and complex as my question was, and that I can continue that dialogue in sort of a linear fashion. It's just going to keep building on to the answer instead of me having to do that mental work of compiling and organizing and compiling and organizing again and again and again. That's huge. Huge. Absolutely enormous. And I think another really good example of where we've been and how you think about these large language models and how they could start to impact the work that we do is is something like predictive type ahead search. I'm thinking about what you just said in relation to the more complex queries on steroids, where not only are they predicting the, the what you're searching for based on what you've typed, but then also the nuances of what do you actually want? What do you actually mean? Because mm -hmm. I think in, in CX world, yeah. not that our worlds are not you know inextricably linked, because they are, um, the idea of when I'm doing an interview, for um, a new concept and I'm thinking about, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have these questions and I'm gonna ask the, the, the customer about X, Y, and Z and they answer the questions in however, however form they do. I have to take that back, listen to it, synthesize it, but not only just hear what they're saying, but maybe how they're saying it or what, what are the additional contexts? What's like the below the surface why behind the question and then ultimately their answer. Mm -hmm. um, Talk to me about what you've seen or what you what you foresee coming in relation to this AI model and these these large language models being able to not only predict kind of what's the best answer to the question, but then also being able to dig underneath and say, all right, where's the nuance and and how you as a pro have kind of a, worked around what is obviously a very, very fluid space right now. Oh, it's kind of exciting, though, I have to say, you know, the last 10 years Heck sort yeah. of being the era of longer specific questions and refining queries after 10 years of doing that, it was getting a little dry. So I'm here for the ride and, and something <laughs> new. Right. This is what made it exciting when I got into it 20 years That's ago. Right. Um, so I, I love what you're saying about predictive search and anticipating people's needs, uh, because there are quotes from Google executives going back a decade or more talking about how what they're really trying to do as an AI is to anticipate and answers people people's needs before they've even thought to ask them in some cases. And so I really think the future search landscape is this it's hard to even put put words around it. It's kind of like right. a, a vast unknown. But I think of it as this highly personalized contextual space. Now, when I got started in search marketing, when you rank number one for something in search results, you rank number one for that keyword for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, of course, search engines want these search results to be progressively more personalized. They want you to keep coming back and using their engine and having a great experience that feels custom tailored to you so that you will use their product, click their ads, and make they will make money. So people are gonna go to search results, they're gonna have this really personalized experience, they're gonna get personalized results or ones that feel very personalized to them. The results are gonna be based on time of day, day of the mm -hmm. week, what device they're on, where they are, past context of what they've searched for. So that's a state we were already in, especially with the rise of mobile, right? What's 
changing is that sort of compound element of multiple queries and increased context about you as a user, you as a searcher, and the conversations or dialogue you've had with these AIs and mm -hmm. chatbots and LLMs. But then we also have to think about the other personalization signals that aren't really about search. Those things that make your search results personalized, location, time, device, et cetera. Um, all of those different contextual signals are already being used to anticipate an answer on your devices today. So let's just say you have a plane ticket booked to go to San Diego, as I do next month. Nice. I'm going to go to the zoo. It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> so I have a ticket booked to San Diego, and I've put it on my Google Calendar. I booked it with my Gmail address uh, and a credit card that is registered with Google Pay. So there's just like all these signals that are readily available to a Google-like object about me and about what I might want. So, of course, they're going to know when I'm going. Tell me what the weather is, what the news is like, what flight conditions might be like. And they're going to start funneling me information about San Diego and the things that are all connected dots in my little personal world. They're going to start reflecting that in the discoverable content that I'm starting to see. Not just when I search, they're going to actually be pushing it to mm -hmm. me and discover content mm -hmm. as well. How would you position somebody in our roles or in your role specifically or in a marketing role, kind of adapt to this change? And, and Because the playbook is, is definitely changing. What should we do about kind of adapting the way that we've previously maybe done this type of work before to evolve toward this, this new normal, which is obviously rapidly becoming democratized as we talked about before. I think about it really from two angles, at least from the discoverability perspective. Um, one is how we consume and analyze and interpret search data and understand searchers and their behavior and how they think and what motivates them. And that to me is like my specialty area. That's where I like mm -hmm. to live is in that search intelligence data. That's where the expectations are going to change and the behavior is going to change. And the other part that we have to adjust is how we apply that in the real world. Um, thinking about the channels in our connections department, right? It's organic search, paid search, performance content, social, yeah. PR, experience. There's all these different ways that content and experiences um, can come to life. And I think they're going to need to be more high quality, informative, contextually relevant and connected than ever. That's been the natural arc over time anyway, but I think that just becomes of critical importance. Um, if you're gonna have integrated search results, you need integrated assets that can be funneled into that search experience for a, a customer. Um, I think we need to be prepared for more conversational marketing strategies. I think using search intelligence to understand the kinds of conversations you can anticipate having with customers um, will be a very powerful tool. I think um, integration with other disciplines in user experience and technology and creative um, analytics, all of those are going to be more essential than ever for a more integrated um, search experience, a more personalized search experience. So it's not necessarily all about doing all new things. A lot of it is about evolving the things or the channels we used to do to do them in better ways that are more mm -hmm. suited to this future state of search. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm, I'm very intrigued by the idea of, of digging into some of those, those changes within ecosystems. So if I own these properties, and I'm trying to show up, how do you get off the treadmill of, I'm just gonna do the same thing and I'm just gonna copy and paste it into 
you name the portion app, or I'm going to be on Alexa. I'm going to change it. I'm just going to copy and paste. Take me through some of that. Yeah. So if we're kind of double clicking down into that search intelligence mindset, not only how do we understand customers and how they think and what they want, but also like, how do we connect the brands to them in those moments? Where are the platforms and surfaces and channels we can reach them? So we almost have to look at those two things kind of differently, right? So when I'm thinking about the user behavior, that's where I think that that rigor comes in for understanding the searcher's mindset across different platforms and search experiences. A lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that Google is the only search engine on earth, but we know there are others like Bing and so on. But we also know that TikTok is a social platform that is of increasing search use to Gen Z for certain types of searches. Mm. We know Amazon, Target, and Kroger are um, the big e-commerce retailers in the U.S. So there's all these different ways and places that people search, and they may have a different way of searching in each Right. So Amazon's going to be more transactional. Maybe TikTok is more informative and educational, whereas maybe all that mid funnel stuff is happening in Google with the how to's and what what do I need to do to accomplish X? Mm. So I, I think that zooming out and taking a more platform agnostic approach to search intelligence would be very wise for us as as an industry, as a capability mm. going forward. Um, I think you can. When, when you do that, when you zoom out and look at the entire customer search journey, when they are in that search mindset, you can drill down into how they search in Google and what they need there, how they search in TikTok and what they need there. But I think having that more zoomed out view and connecting all those sources across the journey is going to be so powerful, so revolutionary to how we think about search data. I, th I think the risk is that many search and marketing professionals will kind of stay in that platforms and channels mindset. But if you do, if you kind of look around us, it's almost like we've run out of surfaces to advertise on and in, <laughs> in the web. And if we think in that way, that, that sort of makes us become obsolete very quickly. But when we're always thinking about the evolving searcher mindset, which is a moving thing and a moving target, that's going to make us more future-proofed, marketing successful, uh, regardless of channel, regardless of what the technology of the day may be. If somebody who is in our space is just trying to start their education slash evolution into a more advanced search intelligence space, leveraging this technology, even if you've been doing it for a lot of a lot of years, but just haven't wrapped your mind around sequential connected queries and the democratization of this mm -hmm. technology and wanting to take maybe that first meaningful step to future-proofing their work, what would you suggest that they would do? Again, besides calling you, because that's what I would do. I'd just call Heather. But if you were going to offer that Please. advice, what, what would you do? <laughs> I think a lot of people will disagree with me on this hot take. But going back to what I just said, I think that people run the risk of over-indexing on learning specific technologies and platforms. I think that's great. It's important. You can learn all the different ways to use it and to function within it. But I think it's much more future-proofed, successful, universal, and useful to focus on how it's going to change our behavior overall. Mm -hmm 
how it's going to change the content we consume or create overall. It, it's such a hard thing. It's such a heady concept. Like I feel yeah. bad. I can't just say, oh, well, just just go read this thing and you're going to figure it out. But you really have to get down to the heart and soul of why people search to understand what this technology is going to mean for people who search, which is everyone on earth. <laughs> so it's so heady. Uh, let me come back to this question so I can feel better about this answer. Because I just... There's got to be a better way for people to dip their heads in than to like have this existential crisis and, and stare at the sky. But I think that's, <laughs> that's that. kind of where we are, though, now with a lot of these technologies where uh, in a lot of ways and Yamada and I were talking about this on, on our podcast episode. And I feel like the the AI blanket kind of gets put over top of all of these different technologies oh, yeah. that are evolving so fast. And, and one of the things he said was that. We're in a new era of technology that's better and faster, and it's certainly smarter at creating really rich responses and answers in basically no time at all and absorbing thousands and thousands of characters and being able to spit out a summary in a matter of seconds. And what I feel like you were kind of like your tension point there was a fair one and a good one, which is there's still a lot of unknown space. It's kind of back when we were just getting started in search and when internet was just like kind of in its infancy and people were like, well, do I really need a website? Do I like, like, how do I even do that? I feel like just having experienced that at, at the front end of this, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going back to the future a little bit, thinking that hey, these same feelings and these same questions are kind of popping back up again that they did then. It's like, okay, I, I think I think this technology is going to work. I think it's going to be cool. I think it's going to impact mm -hmm. how I do things. Uh, and, and I got to think, too, that just kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, that's what's so exciting about our industry right now is that we're not reinventing everything, but we are taking perhaps one of the bigger seismic shifts forward versus incremental improvements to an existing way of thinking. And, and gosh, I, I think that's got to be so, so cool for you as, as the forefront and, and the leader of our discoverability space. And uh, how has your team evolved and, and thought through this? Because that's had to have been just a fun, uh, rewarding time for you as a, as a leader of this practice, right? Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's been super exciting. Like I said, when I first got into this business, the search engine space was just changing so rapidly. And we were constantly trying to like reverse engineer it and understand what they were doing and just understand how brands should exist on the internet. And yeah. I do feel that like fresh rush of energy of doing that again and the hunger of, of just consuming as much information as you can get as quickly as possible. And I feel that energy in my group as well. So it's nice to feel that as someone who's been doing it for 20 years, but it is also really great to feel it living vicariously through these young people coming into the industry who are just ambitious and hungry and excited about all the possibilities. But admittedly, this can be very intimidating, right? Mm -hmm. Like this means that a lot of the things that people may have paid marketing practitioners to do before, yep. which were very rote, repetitive, manual things, they're not really willing to pay for that anymore. And I think that's mm -hmm. a good thing. And I think most workers who used to do that stuff would probably agree because one of the complaints I used to hear all the time was, gosh, if I just didn't have to do this thing manually, I would be able to use my brain so much more, right? Yeah. Well, now we have that. So I'm really um, 
eager and anxious to see how people capitalize on the potential of these tools to just blow stuff wide open. But there is, of course, an anxiety around how do we as marketers stay relevant when a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff that we used to do is now pretty reasonably well done with AI. And I think it's about learning how to be the people who harness that to do the manual work. Yes. And then actually take advantage of the savings created and reinvest that into much more creative, strategic, perhaps opportunistic thinking for our brands. And I was I was reading an article that was kind of along those same lines where these these new professionals that are engaging in these other channels, you know, TikTok, they, they may be searching a different way or be looking for different things. Uh, you know, half the battle in some of this, um, this new technology has been much like when you were a, a programmer trying to learn how to program or if you did, did code of any kind, you had to kind of know what entries to enter in order to get the results you wanted. And I feel like we're in the same boat where, you know, not only are the marketers uh, and, and folks in our space have to be super smart about the humans uh, and, and ultimately their needs and what they're serving, but then also being, and this might be where like the true value and excitement comes in. Yeah, you kind of have to know to interface with the right prompts for the machine that is really robust and really rich and smart. And uh, when the right data is there, can spit out a whole bunch of really great stuff. But what I was reading about this in this article was if you know how to properly prompt these machine learning algorithms, you're going to win. It's going to be much easier and better for you to get the results that you need to help get the best answer or ultimately serve serve the results that you want most effectively. And I think even that in itself is a skill set that our collective minds have to wrap our heads around because, yes, the tool is robust and smart and probably can do a lot of additional like reading between the lines that we were talking about earlier. But it's now forcing us to be smart about, well, how are we asking the, the questions? What prompts are we giving so that it can go into its machine and find the, the right nuggets that we're looking for? Uh, so I, I think it's really a, just a fascinating space, and I really appreciate you taking the time to to share and just chat about this stuff. I love this stuff, and I know you do too. So uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. My pleasure. It's a wild, wacky world. And before we run <laughs> out of time, stuff. though, it is. You are not just doing discoverability 24 hours a day, seven days a week. No, I, I know, though that you could if you wanted to, uh, because you love it so much. But I'd love to hear, and I think uh, those that listen to the show know our, our cadence at the end of the show. We always do some fun facts or get to know our guest a little bit more. And I know you are definitely not only a world traveler, but you do all kinds of really fun things when you're not leading our discoverability practice. And what we talked about pre-show was that you enjoy being around wildlife and you're a <laughs> photographer uh, by, by trade as well. Talk a little bit about that and how you got into it and uh, what makes you excited about doing that every time. Yeah, well, I've been a nature nerd since childhood. I don't know if any of your listeners uh, had the wildlife fact file back in the day, but I sure did. So I'm just out there living the dream. Uh, Yeah, I'm by hobby. I'm a landscape, nature and wildlife photographer. So I like to go to well, anywhere in nature. I'll go to my city park, but I really like to go into the remote locations in nature. You know, the ones that require you to backpack in. 10 miles or up 14,000 feet and oh boy. find animals that most people wouldn't get to see face to face every day. So it's been um, leading to a lot of great adventures this last couple of years, especially. So I got to ask then, what is the coolest place that you have traveled to, to not only just be in nature, but maybe use your photography skills? 
Mm, okay, well, I've gone some wonderful places in the world, but I'm going to say one of my most favorites recently was probably Barbados. I actually picked up a search conference engagement in Barbados a couple of years ago. Dang, and that had to have been so tough for you. Oh, it was <laughs> a rough day, rough week, you know, just... I'm very, very thankful for that opportunity because I got to spend time on this island. This island is like 160 square miles. That is the whole country. That is it. Yeah, but it is some of the most lush, vibrant, colorful, biodiverse space that I've been in and got to really immerse myself and and see a lot of the local wildlife and coastlines and just what what an experience. Highly recommend for anybody who just loves to be outdoors and tropical environments, rugged or beachy. So if we need a CX conference that marries CX and discoverability, I think we got to talk to Mr. John Cook about that and see if we can. Yeah. CX Caribbean. Yes. Yeah, I like yes. it. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. So what's the wildest thing that you've shot? Not with a, a <laughs> weapon, but rather your photography equipment. Talk yeah. about that. Well, I've gotten a few moose. I've had a few moose encounter. Uh, the time I ran into a black bear was a little bit too surprising to get the photo <laughs> uh, for both of us. I think I yes, scared the black yes. bear way more than I scared myself. Um, but I would say, honestly, I'm, I'm most excited about one that I got recently because it has taken me several attempts um, to climb uh, some 14,000 foot mountains and something terrible also happens every single time I am chasing these mountain goats up mountains in Colorado. They're the big white mountain goats, right? Uh-huh. And like I last year, I tried to climb a 14er and had a sudden digestive illness. And oh, so no. had to <laughs> abandon the climb oh, no. and like turn around and go back down. You know, it's something another time I had to abandon the summit because it was just way too windy and gusty and, and scary, you know, so it's always something. But then just this year, like a couple months ago. Despite having just recovered from my first ever bout of COVID and having stitches in my hand from a weird knife accident, I went up another mountain. (laughs) Uh, And just before a storm rolled in at 12,000 feet, a mother nanny goat and her kid walk out for the perfect shot out on a ledge. It was just the best. You're going to have to share that with us and we will post it to our episode page if you're willing to share. I love it. That would be I love it. Yes, I would be happy to. And you've already like intrigued me enough that we have to bring you back on to talk about your knife accidents because now I don't really I don't know you're 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 a dangerous <laughs> you're a dangerous lady. <laughs> um, I really am. It was an embarrassing accident. <laughs> <laughs> well, our listeners will have to stay tuned to the next episode with Heather. Uh, so she can go into that for her next fun fact. Heather, thank you again for this. This has been a great conversation, as I knew it would be. And and any time that you want to come on and chat more about this stuff, as I'm sure we will, we will we'll dial you up and we'll talk this all the time because it's great stuff. Thanks again. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, Nick. Talk soon. And thank you all for listening to Human Centered as well. To learn more about our CX practice and our approach to the work, check us out online at vmlyr.com slash CX. We'd also love to hear your feedback on the show. Give us a rating and offer up your thoughts wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and more. Have a topic idea or just want to drop us a line, you can connect with me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Nick Brunker, or shoot us an email. The address is humancentered at vmlyr.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.